Part 2 of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Harrington. Works of Gaius Sallustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Introduction to the Catiline Conspiracy. The history of the years B.C. 66 to B.C. 62, in which the activity of Lucius Sergius Catalina was chiefly manifested, like that of every other period in any nation's existence, can only properly be understood when viewed in connection with the history of the years which preceded and followed them. The century which elapsed between the final establishment of the provincial system and the Battle of Actium was occupied at Rome with the struggles of a people, great in themselves, greater still in virtue of the dominion over which they ruled, to throw off a system of government which had become antiquated, and to find one which should be capable of satisfying the new wants that had arisen. But the change from the rule of the Senate to that of the Caesars was no easy one for such an unwieldy mass as the Roman Empire to accomplish, and from the tribunate of Tiberius Gracchus to the assumption of the tribunician power by Augustus, we have to watch the miserable experience by which, blindly but surely, it was led to accept the government which alone could bring it peace. No mere fluctuations in Roman politics, persecution of the Democrats by the Senate, or persecution of the Senate by the Democrats, could bring this change about. These had their place, their necessary place, in the chain of causes, but in themselves were only one element out of many which contributed to the result. Rome was not like Athens, where the eloquence of a Pericles could gain its possessor a practical dictatorship for life. The voice of an orator in the forum was insufficient to change the destinies of an empire which stretched from the Straits of Gibraltar to the river Euphrates. Such a change could not be effected without bloodshed, and that on a larger scale than the breaking of a few heads in street riots at Rome. Sulla and Marius had first a battle for dominion in Italy. Pharsalia, Thapsus, and Munda had first to be fought. And even so, the tale of horrors was not complete, till Antony and Octavianus had finally wearied the world with war. Then, at last, the empire was firmly established, and Rome had peace for a hundred years. Let us look at some of the causes by which this momentous change was brought about. Abroad, the rapid succession with which, in the middle of the second century B.C., nation after nation was reduced to the form of a Roman province, made their government by the 200,000 demoralized men who had the right of attending the comitia in the marketplace of a single city an absurdity which could not long continue. The extent of the Roman Empire demanded a ruler, who would not only govern his subjects for their own good, rather than for the wealth to be gained by their plunder, but who would, in some sense, represent them far more truly than could be done by any pseudo-representative assembly in which Greeks and Spaniards, Africans and Asiatics, should come together in unsympathetic union. At home, on the other hand, there was needed a strong executive government to meet the existing distress with some measures of relief, to keep the disorderly rabble of the capital in check, and to render traveling in Italy and on the high seas at least a little more secure. The government actually in power at this time was composed of the grandsons of the men who, in Rome's long struggle with Carthage, had been their country's bulwark. 
With the close of that struggle, the Roman aristocracy had lost their excuse for existing, at any rate as a governing body, and the inevitable conflict had already begun, the end of which was to see the Senate reduced to impotence. The nobility fought for their privileges with unexampled pertinacity, and had they only shown a little temperance in their exercise, might have postponed their extinction almost indefinitely. As Professor Gardner remarks of an epoch, not altogether unlike in our own history, quote, the overthrow of the predominance of the aristocracy would not come from a mere jealousy of their supremacy. It is not in this way that the great constitutional changes are effected. There must be some actual sin of omission or of commission on the part of the rulers to stir up the desire for change, unquote. It is only indeed because it supplies the record of such sins and of their effects that the history of Roman politics during this century of transition is really interesting. The objects for which the Democrats strove against the Senate were sometimes good, sometimes bad, but always, in themselves, comparatively unimportant. To one of the two really great measures of Gaius Gracchus, the enfranchisement of Italy, both parties alike were opposed, and the Italians had, eventually, to win it by their swords. To the other, the establishment, namely, of transmarine colonies, the Senate was opposed, while the people were only lukewarm and half-hearted in its favor. The allotment of land in Italy to the poorer citizens, which formed the great feature in the legislation of the elder Gracchus, was successful as a measure of temporary relief, as we see by the sudden addition of five and twenty percent to the diminishing muster-roll of Roman burgesses. The very frequency, however, with which such proposals were repeated, shows how little permanent good they effected, and how fruitless was the endeavor to maintain a system of peasant proprietorship side by side with the huge farms of the capitalists. This, in fine, in common with every other measure of domestic reform, which formed the subject of contention between Senate and plebs, was ultimately useful only in so far as the struggle it occasioned helped to diminish the power of the aristocracy and paved the way for the abolition of its rule. Of the effeteness of this aristocracy, the provinces, meanwhile, had their experience in the exactions practiced upon them by each successive governor, and at home the people were learning to despise it by their success in bringing its members to trial after such disasters to the Roman arms as those which occurred in the Jugurthine and the early part of the Cimbrian War. Sulla gave the aristocracy one last chance, but this also it threw away, and its impotence in the face of Spartacus and his gladiators, and of the pirates of Cilicia and Crete, proved to Italy and the whole Roman world its unfitness to rule. At the date when Sallust's narrative begins, the end of B.C. 66, this feeling on the part of the people of the utter incapacity of the aristocracy had just taken decisive effect. The Gabinian and Manilian rogations had been passed, the generals of the Senate had been superseded, and the whole forces of Rome were placed at the disposal of Pompey. The object for which the Democrats had unwillingly fought was practically attained, and the end was beginning slowly to come into sight. By the immense powers conferred upon him, 
Pompey was placed in a position to enact on his return from Asia Minor the part which Caesar subsequently played on his return from Gaul, and nothing but his own sluggishness and timidity of disposition stood between him and the perpetual dictatorship of Rome. By these two laws, a new power was created in the state, a power which, though in the hands of Caesar it became essentially democratic, in the hands of Pompey, as the popular leaders clearly saw, might become a fatal agent of reaction. With the rise of this force, the power of the Senate was definitely crushed, and, as a consequence, the old democratic battle cries lost all their meaning. The authority against which they had been useful as levers was overthrown, and to quote the evils against which the Gracchi had striven as the object at this period of the popular party's attack is as idle as it would have been to support the reform bill of 1868 with the arguments used for that of 1832. In B.C. 67, the partisans of Pompey had forced the hand of the popular party and compelled them to support the proposal of Gabinius. The proposal became law, and for the next five years, it was not the Senate, but the suspected military dictator that was the object of the democratic hatred and fear. It is at this juncture that Catiline appears on the scene. To say with Professor Beasley that, quote, he was the successor in direct order of the Gracchi, of Saturninus, of Sulpicius, and of Drusus, of Cinna, unquote, is in one sense true, for every great political movement has its temporary side, which ends in a caricature, as well as its lasting side, which does not end but only merges itself in a higher order. The legitimate successor of Gaius Gracchus, in his noble aspiration towards Italian unity, and in his clear perception of the necessity for Rome of an absolute ruler, is Caesar or Augustus. His legitimate successor on his lower side, on which he pandered to the Roman mob, is Catiline. Nor was it only the leaders of the Democratic Party who found here their fitting and final caricature. Catiline was a Sergius, a member of one of the noblest families in Rome, and in his selfishness, his incapacity, and his unclean life, he only exaggerated the vices which had been prevalent among the aristocracy for the preceding century. Alike in the character of its prime mover, in the blindness and feebleness of aim which it indicates in the Democratic Party, and in the impotence which the Senate displayed in their measures for its suppression, the conspiracy of B.C. 63 forms a fitting prelude to the new epoch, which dates from Caesar's departure to gain himself an army in Gaul. On his return in B.C. 66 from the government of Africa, Catiline, according to Professor Beasley, assumed the leadership of the Democratic Party at Rome. Mr. Beasley is undoubtedly right in pointing out that at this time the leadership was not possessed by Caesar, but we are not for this reason bound to conclude that it lay with Catiline. If Caesar is mentioned in no oration or letter of Cicero's before B.C. 63, on the other hand, until the delivery of the election speech before the Senate about June 64, Catiline's name only occurs in connection with his trial for extortion. If we may argue back from the latter's being engaged in a democratic plot to the likelihood of his being the democratic leader, the same argument would apply equally well to Caesar and several other members of the party. 
In fact, either Gnaeus Piso, whom the Senate dispatched to Spain to get him out of the way, or Publius Autronius, the unseated consul-elect, would have had a better claim to this title of leader than Lucius Catalina, who seems only to have been known hitherto as one of Sulla's assassins, and in connection with a charge of intrigue with a Vestal Virgin. The truth, however, appears to be that after the departure of Pompey for the East and the extension of his powers by the Manilian Rogation, the Democratic Party at Rome was without any recognized leader whatever. Caesar was coming into notice, and three years later may fairly be said to have been its most important member. But in 66 BC, all was confusion. The Democrats had been entrapped into assisting to place an immense force at Pompey's disposal, and they were now in abject terror as to how he might use it. It is at this conjuncture that we hear of the plots which are described under the general head of Catiline's first conspiracy. If we will remember that the real object of terror to all but the aristocratic party at Rome was, not the Senate, but Pompey, that Crassus, a personal enemy of Pompey, was at the head of the knights or capitalists, and that Piso and Otronius, Caesar and Catiline, were all important adherents of a popular party which leaned, on one side, on the support of the knights, on the other, of that of the rabble. This conspiracy may lose some of the mystery which is generally attached to it. Historians have found a considerable difficulty in the fact that the plots which Sallust and Suetonius respectively assigned to this period are puzzlingly alike, and yet differ in important particulars. Sallust speaks of a conspiracy of Piso, Catiline, and Autronius to murder the consuls for B.C. 65 on the first day of the year, and seize the reins of government. Their designs, he says, were discovered, and they postponed their execution until the fifth of the following month when the precipitance of Catiline brought about an utter failure. According to Dion Cassius, the Senate was aware of the conspiracy, but was prevented by the veto of one of the tribunes from doing more than grant the consuls a special guard. From Cicero we learn that Torquatus, one of the consuls who were to have been assassinated, subsequently supported Catiline on his trial for extortion, and declared that, although he had heard something about a conspiracy, he did not attach any belief to the report, and this incredulity, real or pretended, on the part of one of the intended victims, has led some writers, including Professor Tyrrell, to doubt Catiline's complicity in any plot prior to that of B.C. 63. If we turn now to Suetonius, we find an account of a conspiracy also planned to take effect about the beginning of the year, in which there is no mention at all of Catiline, but the chief parts are assigned to Caesar, then Edel, Marcus Crassus, and the two unseated consuls, Sulla and Autronius, the former of whom, if we may trust Cicero, is wrongly included among the conspirators. The objects of this plot were to make away with certain obnoxious members of the Senate, to raise Crassus to the dictatorship, with Caesar as his master of the horse, and subsequently to restore the consulship to the unseated candidate. And the fiasco in this instance was brought about not by any undue haste in giving the concerted signal, but by the timidity of Crassus, who failed to appear at the appointed time. 
The discrepancies between these two accounts are obvious, yet for the existence of the plot mentioned by Sallust we have the authority not only of that historian, but of Cicero, who more than once alludes to it, and it is further vouched for by the fact that more than one person was subsequently tried for complicity in it. On the other hand, Suetonius adduces as evidence for his own narrative the edicts of Bibulus, a speech of the elder Curio, and the history of Tanusius Geminus, authorities too weighty to be disregarded. The obvious conclusion appears to be that there were actually two plots with very similar objects planned to take effect in the beginning of B.C. 65, and this conclusion is greatly strengthened by the assertion of Curio and Octorius Naso, as reported by Suetonius, that Caesar at this time was engaged in another and distinct conspiracy with the young Gnaeus Piso, whom Sallust and Cicero both represent as one of Catiline's most active associates. We should believe, then, that there were two separate plots formed at this time, in both of which Caesar and Antonius were engaged. In the one they united with the head of the equestrian order, Marcus Crassus, and planned a legitimate coup d'etat. In the other they joined their fellow democrats, Catiline and Gnaeus Piso, whom we shall probably not wrong by crediting, even in B.C. 66, with some connection with the anarchists, and, if we may believe Sallust, contemplated, besides the establishment of a military power to counterbalance that of Pompey, a more widespread and indiscriminate massacre of the nobility than Crassus would have thought needful. The two conspiracies, with such similar aims, should have existed side by side is undoubtedly strange, but, on the one hand, the success of Caesar's assassins shows us that if they could only have exercised secrecy and discretion, there was really no need for their promoters to unite their forces. And, on the other, though the capitalists and the anarchists might each ally themselves for their own purposes with Caesar and Antonius, it by no means follows that they would have been equally ready to combine directly with each other. For the rest, the fear of what Pompey might do on his return was so entirely reasonable that there is little difficulty in believing that the three non-aristocratical parties at Rome were simply honeycombed at this time with plots, and the Senate and Torquatus had both ample justification for ignoring the existence of intrigues, which, even after they had failed, could not have been punished without the crisis of a revolution. Lastly, all the chief members of the conspiracies had powerful motives for action. Crassus found his in personal enmity towards Pompey, Caesar in his desire for military command in Egypt, Antonius would wish to regain his lost consulship, Piso, his seat in the Senate, Catiline, to be freed from prosecution. With our knowledge of the presence of such incentives to revolution, and of the abundance of material that was ever to be found ready in Rome, we should almost have been justified in postulating the existence of conspiracies at this period, even if no ancient author mentioned them. As it is, in the face of so much contemporary evidence, the attempt to disprove their reality becomes almost absurd. The history of the two following years is chiefly remarkable for the great strides made by Caesar in the popular favor. 
his munificence when idle, his boldness in reviving the memory of the triumphs of Marius, his success in bringing Sulla's blood-stained instruments to tardy justice, would prepare us for much, but hardly for his astonishing triumph in wresting the pontificate from such a man as Quintus Lutatius Catulus in March B.C. 63. It is well not to make the mistake of imagining him, in the early days of his career, to have been as important a personage in the eyes of his countrymen as subsequent events make him in ours. But after an achievement like this, it is idle to talk of any but Caesar as the champion of the popular party, and of the future dictator having first made his mark by his speech in the Senate at the close of the year. If, when he left his home, overwhelmed with debts, on the morning of that 6th of March, he felt that to fail for the pontificate would involve his ruin, when he returned that evening, he must have felt that the advance he had made towards ultimate success was indeed immense. Meanwhile, however, the events of B.C. 66-65 had left him closely connected with Catiline, in whose favor Crassus also was now working. For Catiline, these two years had not been so fortunate as for Caesar. His trial for extortion had been delayed until the end of 63 BC, and though it resulted in his acquittal, unless Cicero had the power of making mountains out of, not molehills, but absolutely nothing, was attended with some loss of credit. He had also been one of those tried for the part they had taken in Sulla's murders, and though here also, possibly through Caesar's influence, he was acquitted, the reminiscences revived must have been of a character highly inconvenient to a member of the Democratic Party. He was now a candidate with Marcus Antonius for the consulship of 63 BC, and the pair were supported with all the influence and apparently the money of Crassus and Caesar. Had they been elected, we may suppose that an agrarian law similar to that of Rulus would have been carried, and that sons of Sulla's victims restored to their political privileges, these two measures being probably foremost on their ostensible program. We may conjecture, too, that even as late as this, when Pompey's return could not be much longer delayed, a despairing effort would have been made to organize a rival military power. Catiline, however, was rejected, and the influence of Marcus Tullius Cicero, the senior of the two consuls, was sufficient to prevent the democratic measures from passing. The men who were subsequently implicated in the attempt at the end of the year, whether we like to call them conspirators or regard them simply as members of a large and influential party at Rome, had began to send emissaries to the various districts in Italy to rouse their old partisans and to gain new ones, and it is important here to inquire what objects they could have had in view. Professor Beasley, in his interesting and suggestive, though very one-sided essay, on Catiline as a Party Leader, enumerates among the evils of the senatorial rule its misgovernment of the provinces, the exclusion of new men from office, and the abolition of the system of peasant proprietorship and his readers would certainly gather that these were the evils against which the Democrats were now nobly contending. A moment's consideration, however, will show how incongruous with all we know of Catiline are the aims here attributed to him. Was the man who had been morally convicted of extortion while governor of Africa to take up the cause of the distressed provinces? 
Was the sneerer at Cicero as a mere citizen at will to advocate the more frequent admission to office of men whose families had hitherto been undistinguished? Was the leader who subsequently found his best soldiers in the discontented colonists of Sulla to advocate a fresh partition of the soil of Italy for the new proprietors to barter away their farms as their predecessors had done before them? Mr. Beasley has surely been singularly unfortunate in the evils which he has selected for a Catiline to redress. Moreover, we may fairly ask, are the evils he mentions of a kind which the Italians, whom the conspirators tried to rouse, were likely to be interested in reforming? They may possibly have been anxious to share in the honors of office. If so, Cicero, the aspirate, was surely a better advocate of the Novi Homines than Lucius Sergius Catalina. At all events, for the provincials, the Italians had no fellow feeling, and a proposal for a repartition of the soil could only have filled them with alarm. There had been a time when Professor Beasley's comparison of the relations of Pym or Hampton and the Scotch insurgents would have aptly illustrated the connection of a Roman reformer with the Italians of whose cause he was the champion, the time when Drusus made himself the mouthpiece of the men who afterwards fought Rome in the social war. Now there was but one bond of union between the conspirators at Rome and their correspondence throughout the country districts, and this was the general indebtedness. To an Italian municipality it could make little difference whether Crassus or Pompey were dictator at Rome, but it was everything to them if they could free themselves from the omnipresent money lender. The more we study the history of the second conspiracy, the plainer does it appear that it was not, as some have thought, a political revolution to overthrow the Senate, nor yet, as in B.C. 66, an attempt at a coup d'etat to obtain a force capable of opposing Pompey. In October 63 B.C., the Senate was too weak for the Democrats as a party to fear, and the time for a coup d'etat was passed, even if the country districts would have taken part in such a movement. What we have here to deal with is a purely social revolution, which had at its object neither more nor less than tabulae novi, or in plain English, the extinction of debt. Lentulus and Cethegus have been blamed for their overtures to the Allobroges, and circumstances certainly made this intrigue dangerous, but they were only doing then, under the eyes of the consul, what Catiline's agents for the preceding half-year had been doing in every district in Italy. The motive to which they appealed in asking the help of the Allobroges was the only motive to which they could have appealed with any success when they were tampering with the inhabitants of the different country districts. The demand for the abolition of debts is the keynote of the Manifesto of Manlius, which Sallust could not have invented entirely out of his own head. We may distrust Cicero when in a public speech he makes four out of six classes of Catiline's adherents to have been driven to join his conspiracy by the pressure of their obligations. We have no reason whatever to distrust him when in a private letter to Atticus he alludes to his suppression of this insurrection as having given him a claim to the title of champion of the public credit. 
To justify the view here taken of the different character of the movements of 65 and 63 BC, it remains to be pointed out that it harmonizes with all our evidence as to the behavior throughout this period of Caesar and Crassus. We have good authority for asserting their complicity in the earlier conspiracies, which had for their object the establishment of a military counterpoise to Pompey. We see them afterwards in close political connection with Catiline and Gnaeus Piso, and we know that they were both strongly suspected of complicity in the conspiracy of 63 BC, but that all proof of their guilt was wanting. For this suspicion, their previous intimacy with Catiline and the rumors current about the earlier plot provided ample grounds. The fact that no proof was forthcoming, we may ascribe not only to the danger there would, now as before, have been in provoking powerful men by a prosecution, but also to the probability that they were really innocent. Caesar, it is true, was heavily indebted, but his election to the pontificate must have filled him with hope and the veriest gambler will at least see the game on which he has staked a fortune to a conclusion before he begins another. That Crassus, the greatest money-lender in Rome, would for a moment ally himself with the men who rallied to the manifesto of Manlius is simply incredible. End of Introduction to the Catiline Conspiracy